This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. This is Mental Health Moments, the podcast dedicated to breaking down barriers and sharing your stories. Brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Mental Health Moments, brought to you by 105.9 The Region and hosted by yours truly, Phil McCabe. This podcast, in my view, is designed to share as many stories as humanly possible and really delve into what mental health means and what it means to the individual as a whole and to us as the community. Throughout life, the world has evolved. We've turned to the news to help understand very tragic events that have happened. And that really got me thinking that I don't understand what it is to be reporting on crime or or the impact it has on the victims. So joining me today is Tamara Cherry, who was a uh, crime reporter for many, many years and has been gracious enough to join me here today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this stuff, Phil, so I appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully this doesn't age you too much, but in my household, I grew up with your name as being the, the like go-to person for crime reporting. Up until recently, I never really thought about the, the impact, the, the burden that you might carry in having that role. So is it a bit of a dramatization to say it was a burden to do that job? Well, it's interesting you say that, Phil, because up until recently, I hadn't thought about it either. I reported on crime and traumatic events in Toronto for close to 15 years on a near daily basis. And it was never anything that was talked about. When I went to journalism school, it was never talked about. It was, you know, self-care, trauma-informed reporting. It just, it wasn't a topic that was discussed. I've worked in five different newsrooms across Canada, three of them in Toronto, And again, it was never discussed. It was sort of, you just, this is your job. You go out and do it. You try to shut down a part of yourself to to get through it and try to be as compassionate as possible. I know that for myself, I always had a personal code that I never wanted to make the most horrible day of somebody's life any more horrible. And I'm talking about, of course, you know, if there's a homicide and I'm going on knocking on a homicide survivor's door, that is the family of the homicide victim. I don't want to make their darkest hours any worse than they already are. So I was more focused on not causing harm to the victims and survivors than thinking about myself. And I think as journalists, we're always taught, you know, you're not the story, never become the story. Um, And not only that, but when you're covering traumatic events, even if you feel emotionally attached to the story or moved by it, which of course you will, and, and I often was, and like to bring that emotion out through my, through my writing and through my reporting, you know, you kind of catch yourself thinking, well, what I'm going through is nothing compared to what this, this family is going through. I'm, I'm not living in this impoverished neighborhood. I don't fall asleep to the sounds of gunshots. My children are all alive. My husband is still with me. And at the end of the day, you know, you sort of pack it all up and you're driving away and, and watching this, this community, the shattered community in your rear view mirror and thinking that you should be feeling lucky. And of course we are lucky in, in so many ways, but, the mental health toll is never discussed. So did I ever consider it a burden? No, I mean, I would always have journalism students ask me, how do you deal with the trauma? How do you address it? And I had my go-to lines, which I truly believed. And and they were that, you know, I would talk it out with my family on my long drives home after work. I would cry it out. There are many times that I was driving across the 401 at night, you know, crying, thinking about the, the grief of the family that I had just interviewed. 
And, and I would just, you know, sometimes I would need to walk in the door and just give my husband a big hug. I wouldn't talk about anything. And I, I really tried to keep my work life separate from my personal life. So it was very rare for me to go home and talk to my husband about the story that I had covered because I just, when I walked in the door, it was usually, you know, the kids had already eaten dinner, they were on their way to bed. And I was just rushing to try to make it into their bedrooms for story time and, you know, bedtime kisses and all that stuff. And then I would just want to sort of shut down relax on the couch for a couple hours and then do it all again the next day. So I didn't consider it a burden. And in fact, for the most part, I don't think I really considered the impact at all that this reporting was having on me personally or how it could be potentially impacting me in a negative way until after I left the business. And I started this research project that I started about a year ago, examining the impact of the media on victims and survivors of traumatic events. And, and through that started looking into the impact of the traumatic events on the journalists themselves. So this is this past year has really been a journey of self-discovery for me. Um, but as I talk to more and more people about it, I have so many journalists, and I'm talking like big name journalists in Toronto that you'd be very familiar with, whether in the newspapers or on TV, who are reaching out to me with their own stories of PTSD um, and just, you know, different stories that they've covered through the years that haunt them, that are you know, different triggers for them, that sort of thing. So I'm happy to see it's becoming more of the conversation, but it, it certainly was, it was not when I was a reporter and to a large extent, we have a long way to go still. Okay, well, let me just follow up on, on one part that I picked out of that. They, you, you talked about it uh, just now, and even I watched a presentation of yours where you alluded to the fact that you would, you know, cry on your way home and you would kind of decompress that way. Piggybacking off of that thought process, do you find that you were almost doing yourself a disservice by not insisting that you vocalize it with people around you? I think that there's a different, like, I think that talking about it is certainly important. And in terms of vocalizing it with people around me, I would on the job. And that was sort of one way of self-care when you're out in the field. It's go, 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 especially when you're working for a big TV station and you're filing for the noon show and then you're filing for six o'clock, you're filing for all of the affiliates. Your day is go, go, go. You have very little time to sit and think about what, what you're doing. But there were many times in the live trucks when I would be in there with camera person I'd be working with that day, the truck operator, and I'd be writing my story and I would have like tears coming down my eyes. And, and then I would start voicing it and watching the expressions on you know, the camera guy's face or the truck operator and just the sadness that everyone felt. And that was helpful knowing that, you know, everybody's hurting through this. So we didn't talk about it so much. Sometimes we would, but it would be more so just an acknowledgement, like this is a really crappy day or like this really sucks. Or um, one of my colleagues out in the field had gone on stress leave and it, we all knew it was because of the the sorts of events that they had been covering and PTSD and whatnot. But other than that, it wasn't really talked about where I think the real disservice is, is this culture within the journalism industry as, as a whole, that we don't talk about mental health and therapy. So I now have a therapist that I talk to on a regular basis. And one of the things I've talked to her about and that she's shown me is how, how different I think I would be as a person today, if as a crime reporter for 15 years, I had like a, an, appoint, an appointment with a therapist who understands vicarious trauma and, and journalism and how it works. 
like every two weeks to talk talk it out because in the span of two weeks as a crime reporter in a big city like toronto you can cover a lot of traumatic events you might be interviewing the family of a homicide victim one day covering a traffic fatality the next day you might be in court the day after that listening to very gruesome testimony about some child abuse case or seeing autopsy photos um there, there's so many different things that can happen in a span of just two weeks. So if, if I would have had a professional who understands mental health every couple of weeks, I think that that would have really helped me a lot in terms of just the person that I am today. And I think that I dealt fairly well, all things considered. I mean, I didn't, I never turned to alcohol or drugs and I've seen a lot of colleagues do that. I, I was never unfaithful to my husband. I've seen a lot of people do that too, like where you just get stuck in this journalism trauma world and you go down that path. Um, I think things could have gone a lot worse, but I, I've definitely noticed things in my own mental health that I've since connected to my years as a crime reporter that I wish I would have done better self-maintenance on, self-care throughout the years. I wish that somebody would have talked to me about this when I was in journalism school. I wish that... Um, you know, newsroom managers, and I'm not slamming them. This is, this is the industry. This is just the mentality that I'm trying to change would have been more aware of mental health risks in covering traumatic events and would have fostered more of an environment of talking about those things rather than making it a footnote at the end of like a mass email after say something like the Toronto van attack, you know, reminding employees of the employee assistance program, for example, Journalism as a whole just needs to do a better job of acknowledging the toll that covering traumatic events takes. And just as the first responder community, you know, police, fire and ambulance has come around to doing in recent years, journalism, I think, is the next big entity that really needs to start owning that topic and realizing that, you know, different people have different levels of resilience. And um, if you're suffering, it's okay to take time off and you won't be seen as weak. You won't be sidelined from the next big story because it, it won't be assumed that you're not able to, to cover it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's all part of what I'm trying to change in this. It's going to take some time for these things to change, but through your research, through your career, what do you suppose the next logical steps are to, to make these changes? Is it literally just insisting that it becomes part of training? Is it going right to the root of journalism school and, and ingraining it from the beginning? How do we change these things? I think it needs to be everything. Uh, I absolutely think it needs to start in journalism schools. I think that journalists going into the field need to be aware of the potential dangers that they're putting themselves in from a mental health perspective so that they can, you know, be cognizant about practicing self-care, about seeking out a therapist, um, about talking it out with their friends and family, about doing regular exercise, like all of these things, meditation, anything that can help you with your mental health throughout, that was never top of mind for me. So looking back, there were a lot of things that I did that were helping me. For example, exercise has always been big for me because I've always known that that helps with my anxiety. Uh, and when I stop exercising, I start getting more anxious. It's not something that I ever attach to my job, but um, other healthy habits that you can do to take care of yourself. Newsrooms, um, absolutely training is necessary. Uh, right from the top, you know, newsroom managers who are looking, and I've heard from a lot of them who are looking for ways to, to better support their, their people. Um, right down to the people on the ground, just knowing and feeling comfortable in the fact that they're in an environment where they are heard, where their feelings are validated and where it's okay to sit one out 
and maybe do one of the lighter stories. I mean, that said, I never, I don't recall, or there might've been very few times over the 15 years where I felt like I can't do this. I, I don't want to do this one, but I think it's because I was so unaware of the toll that the job was mm-hmm. taking on me or potentially taking on me. So I think just having that awareness and really fostering that environment of, you know, being able to talk about it amongst your colleagues, not being afraid of, of being stigmatized or being seen as, as weak in any way if you're suffering. Um, because another thing that I've really learned a lot, and I, I sort of alluded to it earlier, is that different people have different levels of resilience. And it doesn't mean that you are any less of a, a reporter or you shouldn't be in this line of work. It just means that you might need to pay even closer attention to self-care, you know, and, and with that may come other qualities like more compassion, um, empathy for the people that you're writing about, um, which I think is, is excellent. And we, we want those people in this field because mm-hmm. ultimately journalists, I know I, when I was a journalist, I wanted to write stories that made people care because when you make people care, then they start questioning, you know, how things are, are done and, and, you know, pushing for change calling up their local city councilor, their local MPP, MP, that sort of thing. So there's still a lot that needs to be done, but it absolutely can't just be in the newsrooms or in the journalism schools. It needs to be throughout the system. No, I'm glad you mentioned being empathetic. I'm glad you mentioned about thinking how other people would feel in those moments. Because when I got into journalism, it was made clear to me in my college training. And then even as I I moved into a, a major market that Unfortunately, I am replaceable and I, I feel like just that thought process alone is enough for me to be like, okay, well, I have to cover this story, even yeah. if it's going to exhaust me, I have to cover this, I have to do these things. And I, I can't help but feel like that's a factor in, in this as well that, you know, we all feel, especially in the GTA, broadcasting has an incredibly high turnover rate, whether we want it to or not. So it, I can mm-hmm. see that impacting one's mental health as well. That is such a good point that you raised there, Phil, because um, various studies have shown, and I've heard different speakers say the same, that journalists are at an increased rate, or at an increased risk rather, of developing PTSD, um, not just because of the traumatic events that they cover, but because of the pressure cooker environment that they're working in on a daily basis. So when you think about a journalist's job, I mean, take away the trauma, and you're still left, left with multiple deadlines throughout the day, an extremely competitive market, and the looming risk of, am I going to get laid off tomorrow? We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, Tamara and I discuss her research data and the impact of media coverage on victims, the reporters, and everyone involved. Keep it locked right here on 105.9 The Region. More mental health conversations after this. Hey there, York Region. It's Rob on the road. Stay with us on 105.9 The Region for a whole lot of fun. Coming up this afternoon, I have your musical flashback, Robbie's Believe It or Not, great music, and a few surprises too. Join me, Rob on the road, all afternoon on 105.9 The Region. As a mom of three, I know firsthand the importance of continually learning as a parent. It really never stops. I'm Leanne Castellino. We're here to support moms and dads to parent with confidence and relentless optimism, whatever age your child is at. Each week, we tackle hot parenting topics with newsmakers and experts, all of whom have one thing in common, their parents themselves. Join me for Where Parents Talk every Saturday morning at 10.30 on 105.9 The Region, where informed parents find the best answers. Now back to Mental Health Moments, where we share your stories. 
Now, before the break, we were talking about the fact that reporters can be dealing with a lot even before covering traumatic events. Do you have any examples of that? For example, I just had a, a conversation this morning with a journalist in the United States who had covered a really awful mass shooting. I'm not going to name it right now, but it was definitely one that would, would be a household name for anybody that, that uh, consumes the news. And this is a reporter who was on a different beat, not crime, not breaking news, would never have the reason to interview a homicide survivor, for example, or anybody that had suffered uh, any major trauma. But because this major event happened in their city, they were dispatched to the scene, just like everybody else in the newsroom, and suddenly, you know, thrust into this trauma reporting without any experience or training. So their experience would have been perhaps very different from mine, because I would have known how to go through the motions. Who do I need to talk to? How could they potentially react? That sort of thing. Um, but it was, but, but even having, you know, this was being their first time covering trauma uh, as a very experienced journalist, like that was a very traumatic situation for them. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and just kind of pick your brain on something that has always been in the back of my head since I first became a reporter, since I first came across it. Uh, the company I worked for had a policy of not naming people accused of alleged or of crimes and as long as they were alleged we just never named them hmm. but there was always 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 on social media anyway a a constant pressure for lack of a better word to name and shame this person to put their name on blast hmm. to 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 spread their name as far and wide as humanly possible so i just wanted to ask you what what's your stance on that and moreover can you try and explain the impact that might have on like the people involved that's an, it's an interesting, like entirely different conversation, but very interesting one around that really goes back to like the right to be forgotten. So I was always of the view that if it's public information, if somebody has been charged with something, then they can be named publicly. But the big problem I had with it is police are very quick to tell us when somebody has been charged, but then when a crown attorney withdraws the charge in court, there's not a follow-up news release that goes out saying that this person who you reported on uh, is no longer charged before the courts. And that I think is, is particularly awful for somebody who has been accused of a crime and then is there, you know, months or days or years later uh, going to apply for a job and you, there would be employer, Googles their name and up pops the, the story on CTV news about um, the charges that they were facing. So I have certainly heard from people like that throughout my career and from lawyers that, that they've hired uh, asking to have the story removed. And I've never had a problem with it if the charge has been withdrawn um, or whatever the circumstances may be. But I mean, it can have a, it can, it can have a very big impact. So you're, you're constantly weighing what, and this is something that is very stressful for reporters also, what is the impact of this story going to have not only on the accused person, but if I'm naming them, what's the benefit that will come for the public? Is there Will it be more impactful for the public if they know about the person who is accused? Will this potentially deter other people from doing it? Um, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. I know at, at all the newsrooms that I worked in, we would name people that were accused of crimes. But then there were certain cases that would come up, like impaired driving cases, cases involving sex workers, for example, where there was automatically a, oh, well, but if we do this, like that, that could be extremely embarrassing for them, and which can sound absurd depending on who the audience is but then there are these conversations that happen and something I found frustrating in the industry that there, it, there was very little in the way of like firm policies on 
on what you do in different situations. And that can be problematic, just as the same as when we're talking about trauma-informed reporting. When you don't have clear-cut policies in place, then you're, you're left uh, with the only option is to make decisions in a very, like in a split second, quite often, if news breaks at say five o'clock and you're filing for the six o'clock news or God forbid news breaks at 5.30 or 5.45, you don't have a lot of time to think about what to do if you don't already have that, that in place. So I, we've talked a lot about the, uh, the impact that trauma reporting has on reporters, but where my work in this research project really started was around trauma-informed reporting. So that is the impact that reporting has on victims and survivors of traumatic events. And something I have found very troubling uh, when we're talking about lack of policies is say, for example, what sort of images and sounds you show in the case of a mass shooting. There's few newsrooms that have these thoughtful conversations between the bouts of gunfire so that they know when something happens, you know, we're not going to use that hysterical clip, for example, because that could be triggering for a trauma survivor from another mass shooting, or we're not going to play the sound of gunshots because that could be very triggering for anybody that was uh, present for that shooting. It could also be triggering for anybody who was present for any other shooting. There's so many things that we've just fallen into routine with in our re reporting that we just don't think twice about that are, that are actually very triggering for trauma survivors. So it's something that I found very interesting through my research project is just considering interesting and disheartening just considering all the stories that I did as a reporter. And I considered myself one of the good ones. And there are a lot of good reporters in Toronto, but because I really cared about the victims and survivors I was, I was writing about, I thought that I was doing good work. But in retrospect, I realize now that some of the images that I chose to show in my stories, the sound ups, like the gunshots, that sort of thing, that would have actually caused more harm than good when it comes to a whole bout of trauma survivors who potentially could have been consuming my stories. So I'm really trying to bring that into the conversation just to make newsrooms aware of the impact of the, just what they think of as perhaps mundane images or, or pieces of sound um, or even stories, you know, covering stories. Um, just because somebody is saying something, do we need to be reporting? Like, is that we need to be always considering what is the news value in this and what are the pros that can come from it and what are the cons that can come from it? And then we're weighing that. But I think sometimes, especially in this hyper-competitive environment like the GTA and many other major markets, it is a rush to, it's not what impact will this have if we report it, it is what impact is it gonna have if somebody reports it first? So how can we justify getting this video out the door as soon as possible or this or this piece of sound or this 911 tape, stuff that is very dramatic and sensational. And we're not making those decisions because it's like, oh my God, this is so sensational. I think that a lot of times we think that it's, it's helping us tell the story. If we can tell a compelling story, then we can affect change, but we're not considering the harm that some of that stuff can do. So I, like, I, I just think that newsrooms in general and it, and it doesn't all just fall on newsrooms. I have a lot to say about the victim survivor community as well and the role that they need to play, but they need to be having thoughtful conversations about how they cover traumatic events so that this news coverage can be benefit for, beneficial for all stakeholders. And by all stakeholders, I mean, you know, the investigation, but first and foremost, the victims and survivors that, are, that have been in, impacted by the traumatic event, and also the, the journalists who are, who are covering the stories. How do we lessen the harm that these stories could do on them and the moral injury that they could suffer by 
just by virtue of the way that they're doing their job, because it's the way that it's always been done with the door knocks and the calling through the phone book and going to the hospital and all that stuff. There's all this stuff in that industry that is just the way it's always been done. But how many people have actually stopped to consider whether it's right or wrong? You know, just because something's been done in a certain way for several decades doesn't mean it's right, especially when you consider the environment we're in today where we're talking more about trauma and mental health and self-care. There's so much to unpack from that. But there was something that kind of jumped out at me as you were describing these different things that as much as there's humans involved in the reporting of the news, it, it seems like the human element of it is, or is not there. The compassion isn't there when trying to, to get the news out first and so on and so forth. So it's, I'm glad that you're opening this conversation. I'm glad that you're trying to, to get people to understand, you know, these things that we're showing, these things that we're saying do have an impact other than relaying information you know that mm -hmm. these things are can be dangerous i i think back to even uh after the boston bombing when they were looking for the the perpetrator that managed to, to get away the fact that cnn nbc all these different major outlets were playing on a loop not just the explosion but the shootouts in the neighborhoods and stuff mm -hmm. and like these people are still living with this. They're still looking for this man and mm -hmm. you're blasting their neighborhood being shot up all over the place. That, that, that's not right in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And talking just about the images of the, the explosion in the marathon, um, showing that sort of stuff and whether it's the Boston Marathon or cell phone video from a school shooting um, or any number of things, showing it over and over again um, studies have shown that it's not only harmful for the people that were there or who have suffered other mass violence incidents, but actual members of the public. So not even talking about the people who lived in that neighborhood, for example, in Boston or near Boston, wherever he was found. Um, members of the general public who consume that news coverage are actually, studies have shown, to be at an increased risk of developing PTSD just from consuming this this coverage of the hysterical clips and the the cell phone video and you know showing the the explosion over and over again they're actually shown to be at an increased risk and one thing i want to clarify that is is your point about compassion the lack of compassion i i don't want to say that it's a lack of compassion because i know that the vast majority of the reporters and and camera people photographers that i worked with in toronto were extremely compassionate people and care deeply about the stories that they're reporting. But it's just a lack of understanding of the impact that your images and, and your clips and everything like that can have on trauma survivors in particular that is, is causing this extra harm. So it's not necessarily a lack of compassion as much as it is a lack of understanding. It's just, it's an ignorance in the realm of trauma-informed reporting. And I had that ignorance for the vast majority of my career. It didn't mean that I didn't care deeply about the people I was reporting on. I was trying to make my stories as impactful as possible. And sometimes that meant for me using images like uh, a body that was underneath a, an orange sheet or uh, being removed in a body bag from a crime scene and not thinking about the impact that that would have on not just the homicide survivor in that case, but potentially any number of homicide survivors. So Lack of compassion, it's there with some people. Some, there's some journalists, photographers that perhaps lack some compassion, but the vast majority of them, I think, are very compassionate and not understanding. And something I found interesting in doing this work since I've started talking about my research project 
is all the journalists I've started hearing from, not just about their own stories of trauma, but how hungry they are for change and information and, and just the proper training and tools for them to do their job properly so that they're not causing further harm, not just to themselves, but to the people that they're reporting on. I have a, a tradition on the show and I hope you'll indulge me as we're wrapping up here. Sure. Someone out there suffering through a mental health crisis right now, what would you like them to know, whether it be uh, a reporter dealing with the, the ramifications of the job, a, a victim, a survivor, anyone out there, what would you like them to know right now? That your trauma, it, it's okay to feel this way, that you are sick, not weak, that it's okay to reach out to somebody, uh, thinking about reporters in particular, um, that your trauma is real. You know, that just because you weren't the one to suffer the homicide or the traffic fatality or the sexual assault or, you know, the child abuse, it doesn't mean that you don't suffer also. Something that my therapist told me that has always stuck with me, uh, she told me, like you, like me, we suffer. Um, so just, just because you're suffering, it doesn't take away from the suffering of others and it's okay to feel that way and seek out help. Tamara and Terry, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, if people want to get to know more about you or your research, where can they go to do that? I would encourage anyone to visit my website, pickupcommunications.com. Um, you can see more about my project there. I'm slowly but surely putting more information out there. I'll also have a research paper coming out in the fall, uh, also working on a book. Um, so you can also follow me on social media. Uh, on Twitter at Tamara Cherry and reach out to me through my website or on Twitter. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate this. I appreciate the platform. Thanks, Phil. That'll do it for Mental Health Moments on 105.9 The Region. I am your host, Phil McCabe. Until next time, I'll close with You Are Loved. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health concerns, contact a local agency near you. This has been Mental Health Moments brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Discovery the radio show for podcasters exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.